You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I had the opportunity to sit down with the Honorable Glenn Berman, who's a retired New Jersey Superior Court judge. He's had a colorful 48-year legal career. He shared his personal stories with me, starting with his roots in New Jersey, his education, and his impressive career trajectory starting out in private practice, having his own law firm, and moving on to being a judge and a county prosecutor. Of course, this wouldn't be complete without a discussion of the notorious Darun Ravi case in New Jersey. I hope you enjoy listening to his stories as much as I did. So I want to get a little bit of background information about you. Some of it I sort of know, but some of it I don't. I know you're from New Jersey? Yes. Am I right about that? Yes. Where did you grow up? South River. Your whole life? Yes. And what did your parents do? My dad was what's called a, uh, a closed contractor, which means uh, he would be sent raw material. He would make it into a finished product, ladies' pants or ladies' shorts, and then return the product. My mother was a school teacher, but when we, she had her kids, myself and my three siblings, she had to stop with four kids, although we, as we got older, she did a lot of substitute teaching. Okay. So your mom went to college. Did your dad go to college? Yeah, both of them did. Okay. Was that something they emphasized when you were a kid, going to school? They didn't really emphasize it. It was just sort of a given. So they didn't talk about it, but it was just always assumed that we would. And for me, it didn't have to be talked about because I know this sounds crazy, but I could remember wanting to be a lawyer since I was in kindergarten. Okay, I was going to ask you that question. Why? Why did that appeal to you, especially at such a young age? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, My father worked in an unair conditioned factory. And he said to me at a very young age, I don't want you to end up having to work like me. In fact, he used to go outside in the summer to warm up, to to cool off. That's how it was like. And he said, I want you to be professional. Now, to a five-year-old kid, that meant three things, doctor, dentist, or lawyer. I never was good at science, and I had an uncle, a favorite uncle, who was a lawyer. So he sort of, without saying anything, inspired me to be a lawyer. It also seems like a safe profession because, you know, I think we assume that you can make a good living. Well, I always wanted to be independent. Uh, I knew, I didn't think about it at that age, of course, but I knew as a lawyer I could work for myself. And were you mindful of getting good grades? Were you really driven in terms of achieving when you were in school? I'm sure I was because uh, my parents were, when it came to getting good grades and doing your work, uh, there was no negotiation about that. Uh, In fact, if you want to hear a funny story about Mm -hmm. it, I'll I'll never forget this. When I was in fifth grade, my older brother was the seventh. I was in my younger brother's in third. Uh, I guess we got report cards quarterly. So at the end of October, I'm in fifth grade. We all come home with report cards, march into the kitchen, show them to my mother. They were all terrible, all three of them. My mother said, okay, from now on, no TV. If to school the next day after 7 o'clock, period. Both my mother or my father didn't argue. I guess 7 o'clock was... Back then, we would watch like the World Series or baseball. Most was in the afternoon. So six or eight weeks later, you know what happened? We walk into the kitchen with the beautiful report cards. I must have been designated the spokesman because I said to my mom, 
I guess you're vacating the, the TV ban, aren't you? And she looks at me. And, and you goes, said it just like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if I use the word ban. And she looked at me at a straight face. She goes, are you kidding? Look how great it's working. Oh. <laughs> I didn't see a TV on for over seven years. I, until I got to college, seven years later, I never saw a TV again. On a, it's a school the next day. Because if my mother set a rule down about getting good grades, you didn't. there was no argument. So we all got good grades. Did you feel like that was a major injustice in your life <laughs> at the time? No, no, I just thought that she was th- that she was my mother. She wanted what's best, and you know, I didn't think it was an injustice. It was just the rule of the house. You just live by it. Would you say that you grew up in a strict household? Uh, well, s- strict but fair. Uh, I mean, there's certain things you didn't do. For example, in in my in our house. For example, you never use profanity. You wouldn't talk back. You wouldn't argue. But on the same token, my parents gave us a liberty to, to play as we wanted. Like I played, I think, eight years of organized baseball from Shorty League through Minor League through Babe Ruth League through Little League. So, and if I wanted a date in high school, there's no questions. You, you go ahead, go out with who you want. So the answer is, it was strict in that we always knew who the boss was, but we were. But I was pretty happy, so I can't. Say, so it wasn't unfair. So you feel like you had a good childhood? Yeah, my parents were uh, were a good match in in the way they were. I mean, my father was very decisive. My mother was very patient. It was a good combination. Hmm. So then there came a time when you graduated high school hmm. and went to college. Where did you go to college for undergrad? Gettysburg. And why did you pick Gettysburg? I wanted to go to a, s- a small school where I wouldn't be a number. Uh, I didn't want to go to a school where it would be like, say, 300 kids in a in a, a lecture hall. And Gettysburg, when I went there, I had only, I think, 1,800 students uh, where no one was a number. For example, I think there were like 13 or 14 kids in my English class first year, uh, maybe 18 in Spanish. I think the biggest class was the, the lecture hall for chemistry. Maybe it was... 60 or 70 but I wanted to be in a small school where I would know the professors they would know me and they did in fact I had one class one course my senior year in college I was the only student in a course now you need certain grades to get to it it was called independent study where I worked with a professor uh, so in that respect uh, you know I enjoyed it so independent study is that sort of like when you just write a paper and you know, you have an advisor. Uh, well, in this course, I had I had an advisor, but this was 1968-69, so politics were pretty. Politics weren't as viral back then. I mean, uh, and that was the '68 election where they Chicago was burning with the riots and Miami, Nixon, Humphrey, the war. So I didn't have to write a paper, but I had to read a bunch of books. And I would read a number of books. I would pick out on political science, my major. And my professor, I'd read them. He'd read them. We'd talk about them. But he needed a certain great point to, to qualify for it. So he knew right away that uh, I must have been a good student. Well, I, I actually had this professor for two other courses earlier. But it was great I mean, to be the only student in class. Actually, we didn't even have a classroom. We used to meet in, a, in the coffee shop. Did you feel like that gave you a certain level of intellectual stimulation? Well, 
Gettysburg, at the time. Gettysburg itself did because when I was in high school, I didn't know how to study. One of my teachers said to me one day, you're going to have to really wake up when you get to college. I said, why? She goes, because you're getting pretty good grades because you have above average intelligence and a good memory. You get to college, that won't, will not get you through. And she was right. When I first got to college, my first year, year and a half, I struggled. I was getting mostly B's and C's. Now, by the time I graduated, I was on the D's list. But I didn't know how to study till I got to Gettysburg. So Gettysburg was a challenging experience. And did you think she was right when she said that? Or did you think she doesn't know what she's talking about? Well, at the time she said it, I didn't like hearing it. But in retrospect, of course she was right. Because I didn't study hard in high school. I got good grades. Uh, but I guess being immature, I took more pride in getting good grades by not doing anything. And she said to me, you're going to have a, you're going to get a wake-up call. So she, so she <laughs> had a good read on me. And she was a good teacher. I remember her well, well. So you had this moment in college where you were like, she's right. Well, I didn't think of her in college. I had another, another English teacher I did, I did used to think about a lot. But when I got to college, I realized that my habits I had from high school were not working. Like I said, uh, I remember getting to college and taking some exams uh, early on. I remember failing a couple of them. Wow, that's well, hard to believe. Early on, well, maybe a D, maybe a, uh, slightly below a D. I mean, uh, like a, if, if passing was a 70, I got like a 68. It was early on in college where I realized you, you can't just wing it. Yeah. So what did, what did you do? What was your thought process then? Like, I better get this together. My thought process was exactly what you just said. But th that's where I learned how to study. I, I really didn't. Gettysburg, that's why I found law school. I had better grades in law school doing less work, uh, putting in less time. Because by, by the time I got to law school, I really knew how to study. Well, some people would have thought, well, maybe college isn't for me. But that never occurred to you. No, no. Gettysburg was a great place for me. Uh, I just had to, I just had to work at it, and I wasn't used to working at it. Yeah. So a lot of times, at least now, I think the perception is that a lot of kids go to college to party, and there's some schools that have a <laughs> reputation for that. And I think when you're that young, sometimes the intellectual pursuits are not exactly on your mind. Would where would you say you fell into? Because it sounds like if you were doing independent study, you were you liked learning. Well, that was just one course at the end of my senior year. Gettysburg, I was in a fraternity, so did we party on Saturday nights? Yes, uh, but during the week, like I said, uh, I had to learn how to study, and I did. I finally got I got the grasp of it, as I realized pretty early on, I was not getting into law school. With, with B's and C's. So did that desire to go to law school ever waver? Did you, was there ever anything else that you thought about? Well, maybe I could, would like to do that instead. No, no. Law school, I remember back in the 60s to go to college, you usually had to interview with the admissions director. It wasn't, I don't know if kids have to do that today, but I remember going to Gettysburg for my interview with the uh, director of admissions with my dad. I, I'm sure my mother was there. My dad was there for sure. I remember my dad even asking the director. He said, uh, so he knew what my, I was thinking. My dad said to the director, 
where do your graduates go to law school? And on the spot, the director pulled out a sheet of paper out of his desk saying, well, we have kids here, here, here. So my dad even knew that I was going to Gettysburg to eventually get to go to law school. That was always my plan. So what was your major? Well, I majored in political science. I minored in uh, business and economics, or economics and accounting. And did you know what kind of law you wanted to practice or what you wanted to do with your career? I, I didn't think about it that much, but if I did, it was probably corporate law. Why that? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I could tell you what I didn't want to do. What didn't you want to do? Family I, law? <laughs> yeah, I probably didn't want to do that because uh, I probably didn't want to be in the middle of all the uh, contentiousness. So I didn't, I didn't really think about the type of law, but if I did, it would probably be corporate. When I got to law school, I thought more about corporate law because one of, the, one of my favorite courses in law school is corporate tax. Okay. That was not one of my favorite classes. <laughs> you know, I, I enjoyed it. I had a great teacher. I, had a, I did well. It was very interesting, and I thought I was good at it. So you didn't envision yourself going to court, or did you? Uh, I really didn't. Uh, I didn't think of myself that way. Did you have any fear of going to court? Because I remember from law school there were certain people that they said, I want to do corporate because I do not want to set foot in a courtroom. Was I'm, that a consideration for you? I'm not sure. We're going back a ways. Yeah. Uh, I know in law school, when I first got there, I was pretty afraid of speaking up in class because the teachers were, because if you spoke and you you said something wrong or you gave the wrong answer. Where I went to law school, the teachers were pretty, the professors were pretty tough on you. Well, they use Socratic method, right? Yes, but I remember vividly professors really coming down on you hard if you gave an answer they thought was, uh, you call it just uh, not well thought out. Okay, so you graduated from college, political science, business and economics. And then you went on to law school. Where did you go to law school? That is a funny question in, in this respect. I applied to Western Reserve Law School in Cleveland. And one day in January, I got an acceptance from Case Western Reserve. I'm thinking, did I even apply there? What happened was, yeah, I went to, was the bottom line is I went to Case Western Reserve. Now they call it Case. Because what happened was there were two universities in Cleveland, literally within blocks of each other, Western Reserve University, which had the medical school, the dental school, the undergrad, the law school, and Case Tech, Case Institute of Tech, which is what the Cleveland people will tell you is their version of MIT. So my senior year in college, they merged into one university, Case Western Reserve, now known as Case. That's where I went to school. And how did you pick that school? Or, well, I guess it sort of picked you, but actually, initially you applied. No, actually it did sort of pick me. I'll tell you why. I hadn't applied there initially, but my senior year in college, my college big brother, who by then, my, when I was a freshman in college, I had a big brother. They, they signed you big brothers, who was a senior in college when I was a freshman. By the time I was a senior in college, he was a third-year law student. And he came back, I guess, I think at homecoming or something, and he was sort of like semi-recruiting for the law school, interviewing st pr prospective students, and, and he saw me. And he said to me, uh, why don't you think about case? And then what happened was over semester break, 
I took a road trip. Went out to Cleveland to see him. I met the dean. And then I went to uh, South Bend to visit a buddy of mine who you probably know, Joe Theisman, now Thiesman. He went to my high school. And then a girl I was had met in Northwestern. And then I came back to Gettysburg. So I met the dean. He interviewed me, which he didn't usually interview college students. I got accepted, and I figured this is the place for me. So there you went. Yes. So I, got, I sort of got there by accident. If I didn't meet my big brother homecoming weekend, I hadn't, like I said, when I met him, I didn't even apply there. I applied to about five other schools. So what was your experience like in law school? I loved law school, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I, had real, I had really good grades. I was on law review. Uh, so you had figured out how to study by then. I learned how to study. I was on law review, had high grades, had some really good friends. I uh, had my first really, I call it, serious girlfriend, who was great. And uh, in fact, it was so great. One summer I stayed there and worked for a professor. I didn't even come home one summer. What did you do for the professor? The professor got a grant to write a book on pretrial delay in felony cases. And he hired me to be his research assistant. In fact, we hit it off so well, that was between my second and third year in law school. So I worked for him the entire summer. And we hit it off so well that for my third year in law school, he hired me to be his, his uh, like assistant on, on, a, on another project dealing with search and seizure. So I worked for him the summer before my third year in law school full time, 40 hours a week. Then I worked for him after class my third year in law school, and I got paid the whole time. That must have been a really great experience. Yes, I'm still in touch with him somewhat. In fact, it's, I, I laugh when I say this. I, I used him to screen prospective law clerks for me. Really? Yeah, I would call him on the phone and mm. say, when I would get an application from Case, I'd ask him to screen for me. So what kind of things was he looking for? Well, I always told him this. I said, I work closely with my law clerks. First of all, I got to be someone who I will enjoy working with. I want all law students have to be bright or else they wouldn't be there in the first place. So I said, listen, I know they're all bright, but I want someone who will work hard, someone who's going to be thorough, dedicated to the job, and someone who you think I'll enjoy working with. So I would, when I would get applications, I'd call him on the phone, but then I would call him Lou. His name is Professor Katz, and say, what do you think? So he would actually screen applicants for me. So was he, would you say he was your mentor? Yes. In some, if I had a mentor, the answer would be him because, like I said, I worked for him an entire summer. In fact, uh, I remember b before I graduated, uh, his wife and I and my girlfriend and I went, all, went out to dinner. I think he, he had a barbecue also and had me over. So I got close to him. And at that time, it sounds like you were working in all criminal work. Well, only because that was he was a criminal professor. I did, again, pretrial delay in felony cases. Then he was working on a book for Ohio law and search and seizure. So criminal was not my interest in terms of an ultimate career, but that's what he did, and it paid. I enjoyed the work, and I enjoyed working with him. So your interest didn't shift at that point? You were still interested in corporate? Yeah, at the time I was, like I said, but uh, the only professor, but this professor hired me. And like I said, I enjoyed the work. I just didn't want to do it, you know, full time after law school. 
And you made a comment that everybody in law school is bright. Wasn't there a time, because I always heard this in school, there was a time when they would say, look to your right, look to your left, one of you won't be here. Well, when I, the answer, yes. When I say law, you're bright. I mean, to get into law school, you know this. Yeah. You have to have good grades in college. You have to do well in the LSATs. And if you're not bright, you will flunk out. Uh, when I got the case, I think we had north of 160 freshmen or first-year students. There are no freshmen. They call them first year. We graduated, I think, 140 because we had a dean who was very tough. Uh, and he, I know he told the professors, this dean we had in law school was a Harvard man. And Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law. If you looked at the roster of our professors at law school in case, with one exception, every single one graduated either Harvard, Yale, or Columbia. And I know he told those professors, this one told me, you grade as if you're grading at Harvard. If that means you flunk them out, flunk them out. Uh, so the answer is we did have a number of kids flunk out. We had a number of kids just walked out, just left voluntarily. So we must have lost, we must have lost 20 or so students. Like I said, I think we started That's a with, lot. I think we started with 160 or 170, and I said we graduated 140. Uh, give you an example. I remember our property professor uh, told me, who wrote the book, actually, that 60% of the class got a D or an F. And wow. I, I got a B, so I was happy. <laughs> but he was told, because he had, he had taught at Harvard, and he said he will grade as if he was grading at Harvard. So if you didn't match it, so if you didn't meet his standards, that's what you got. So you got a Harvard education without getting the Harvard degree. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but uh, well, interesting. Here's what a law professor told me one day: the difference in law schools is the bottom of the class. I had a law school professor who, who taught at Harvard said to me one day. The top of the law schools, the top people in class at Harvard, say Harvard, Case, Rutgers, Pitt, Cornell, uh, UVA, are all the same. They're all brilliant. He said the difference is at the bottom. He says you could find a student at the bottom of the Harvard Law School class, he told me one day, who might be incredibly brilliant. To get into Harvard Law School, you've got to be pretty good. So, and then he said to me something else. He says, plus it only matters for your first job. No one asked you where you went to law school after your first job. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought even now that it, it depended where you, like what you're saying, where you wanted to get a job mm. because certain firms mm. only hire from Harvard yeah. or from Ivy League schools. But for the rest of us, you really just needed the degree. Well, I at the time, actually, I actually wanted to stay in Cleveland because I envisioned myself working in a big firm. Again, the, the woman I was dating was a teacher out there. So I envisioned staying in Cleveland, actually, but obviously didn't. Do I have to ask that did that not work out, that relationship? <laughs> well, it was sort of, well, obviously it didn't. And so, so you, you, if you, that had worked out, your life might have turned out very different. Might still be there in Cleveland. Could be. Actually, I ran into her some years ago because she had, Coincidentally, was living in New Jersey for a while. And I that is funny. Her. Yeah. So okay, so maybe you would have ended up in New Jersey. We'll never know. Who knows? So you did end up back in Jersey. Yes. When you graduated, mm -hmm. 
was it just sort of natural to come back here because there was nothing keeping you there? So you what, came home. What happened was the my third year in law school, I was applying for jobs. And it was tough to get one. I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I got an offer in New Jersey. I'll tell you why it was tough to get a job. This may sound crazy, but this was 1972. First of all, I was single. And the big law firms, they won't say this. They didn't want to hire single people. Why? They wanted people who were tied down and were afraid of you moving. Like, I guess they were afraid that they wanted people who were, had roots. That's number one. Number two, I wasn't married. And number three, I had an Army commitment. I was, in, I was uh, after I graduated law school, for a while I had to go into the Army because I was an ROTC graduate. So between being single, being unmarried, the military commitment, I guess the big law firms didn't want to take a chance on me. What, what did you have to do to satisfy your military commitment? Well, what happened was uh, when I graduated law school, I had a two-year commitment. But at that time, Nixon was pulling troops out of Vietnam. So they were, I think, they were, I think the term is called rifting, RIF, reduction in force. So to fulfill my military commitment, I only had to spend three months on active duty. They called it TDY, temporary duty. I was in Virginia. And then commit to an eight-year reserve commitment. So I was, after I got out of law school, short time thereafter, I was down in Virginia for three months in, in officer school, released with an eight-year reserve commitment. And, wow. then, and then I was done. Do you feel like that prepared you for law in any way? Or life? Well, interesting, I don't know how to answer that except to say this. I do remember in officer school down in Virginia, they taught a course on public speaking for officers, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had sort of gotten over your fear of public speaking or your shyness, because you said when you first went into school you had that. Well, I think when I, when I got in college, teachers really didn't call on you. What I was afraid of in law school was, I remember the first time I ever spoke, I was, I remember being called on once, but I had the right answer, so I got it, so I was okay. But I remember this professor I worked for, I mean, he would grill you. So one day, I remember he asked the question, and about seven kids got it wrong. I knew the answer. I figured, well, before he ever calls on me, I better raise my hand. I'll never forget this long as I live. I raised my hand. I was in the back row, and he calls on me. He didn't even know my name. But you better have the right answer. <laughs> so I'll never forget this long as I live. I gave him the answer. And he goes, repeat that, because that's the right answer. So after that, I was golden. Because like I said, after seven or eight kids in a row, all couldn't figure out what he was getting to, and I got it right on the, I nailed it. He knew I was prepared. Was that a first year class? Y yes. Yeah, I remember being terrified my first year too. Yeah. Well, well, actually he prepared because you're so terrified in a way of being unprepared that I studied hard in law school. I knew how to study and I studied hard. So I was never unprepared in law school. I mean, never. Well, you can be prepared, but then some people, when they're put on the spot, mm -hmm. they just get nervous. Uh, well, I wasn't comfortable. I don't think I was nervous, but you don't like being called on. I guess some people can't perform under pressure. Well, so if you had that, you got over it. Well, there's one professor... I remember who was really tough also. 
uh, called on me twice in a row, like on Monday, then on Wednesday. What really annoyed me was on Monday, he goes, uh, he's looking at his seating chart. He goes, uh, Berman, Miss or Mr. Ms. or Mr. So I said, it's Mr. He called on me. I gave him the right answer. Two days later, he goes, Berman, Mr. Mr. I goes, it's, it's Mr. I gave him the right answer again. He never bothered me again. You must have figured it out. You must have figured something out. Well, like I said, I mean, I studied hard in law school. And, but you said you were in the back row. In that one class. That, okay. That was my first year. This other professor who, who said Mr. and Mr., that was second year, second or third. Well, I figured out that if you sat in the front, they even though you're right there mm-hmm. in front of them, they were looking for the people hiding. Well, no, they, I'll tell you I was in the back row. Uh, because what happened was you had a seating chart. He had assigned seating in his class, and I happened to be, I just was in the back row. I wasn't there by choice. Yeah. So do you feel like, it's often said that when you go to law school, you're, it's like you're learning an, another language. You're, you're learning how to think. Would you agree with that? I heard a professor say that once. He said, he said it differently, though. He goes, in law school, he said, we sharpen your mind by narrowing them. So do you learn how to think in law school? Yeah, I think you do. Yeah, you learn to think in a very different way. Yeah, you do. And it, you become much, You, I don't want to say you become more analytical. You just learn to analyze things in a, a different way than other people do. I agree with you, and I also think you become more analytical. Yeah, And I think you have to. Yeah, and people don't like to argue with us. Non-lawyers, <laughs> lawyers, they'll, they'll never stop arguing, but non-lawyers, they don't. <laughs> do you find that? They avoid an argument. That's true. That's, I agree with you on that. So I, I say sometimes we're, it's like we're professional arguers. Well, I never thought of myself that way, but I can't deny it. Might be a little negative. Mm. Maybe I can find a better way to spin that, something more positive. Mm. Um, but so, okay, so you, then you went on, you finally found a job. Mm-hmm. And where was that? What were you doing? My first job out of law school, I worked for a little small firm, Protheum Boy, that's no longer there. Uh, two of the people, it was a three-person firm, three lawyers and me. Well, I'm a lawyer, too. Three partners. Uh, two have since died, and one's retired. So I was with them for six years. Do you remember how much they paid you? I remember my first, my initial offer, yeah. It was, uh, I think, I would get a percent of what I would generate, plus $7,500. Did that feel like a lot at the time? No. Oh, so you were you knew you were being underpaid at the time. Well, I say no. Be, well, it was more than I was. I wasn't making anything, but I knew what the law firms say. The big law firms like in Cleveland and New York were paying. And it was a lot more. Yeah, you kind of have to sell your soul to the devil, though, don't you? Well, to do that. It was the only job offer I had, so I didn't have a lot of choices. So you were happy to have a job. Sure. But you stayed there for a while, so it mustn't have been terrible. I probably stayed there too long. Oh, you think so? Why th- do you say I that? I think I was afraid to go out on my own. Ah, well, I think that's something that's relevant to people today. You know, I was getting a steady paycheck. I think I was just afraid to open up my own office. So what kind of law were you doing? Uh, for this firm, a lot of personal injury work, a lot of municipal court work. So not corporate? No, none. Very, very little. So did you ever think to yourself, why am I doing this? This isn't corporate work. Well, the problem is, as you know, is that you can only do the work you're hired for. P- clients come to you. You don't go to clients. Were there not a lot of law jobs then? I don't, 
I'm not sure. Because I know per capita, New Jersey has too many lawyers. Well, back then they didn't. That was not the case back then. No, back then there was not a, uh, an excess of lawyers in New Jersey. So I can't say that. But I, was I doing the kind of work I would have loved to have been doing? The answer is no. I would have rather been doing corporate tax work. But corporate clients weren't going to Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Did you feel stimulated in that job? Intellectually? Well, that's a good question. Uh, now, remember, I'm gone. I left there in 1978. So I, I like the people for the most part. Uh, I liked having a steady job, but was it intellectually that challenging? In some respects, it was. In some respects, it wasn't. I mean, so I never thought of that until you just asked me. So you you left at some point. There must have been, a, what was the reason that you left? I had a rift with a senior partner. Hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't viable for me to remain there. Okay. And then where did you go? Did you go out on your own then? Yeah, opened my own office in South River. So I always I always find it interesting how people leave firms and go out on their own because sometimes there's a very specific event like they get fired or the firm dissolves or you know something like that what you just described happens and they can't really imagine just finding someplace else to work. Well, I really had to leave because like I said I had, I'll call it, an irreconcilable difference with a senior partner. And it was the best move I ever made because the timing was perfect. I told him about the timing was perfect. I was moving into my own hometown where everyone knew me. And you know, if people don't know you, they don't call you. And also that year, I was up for re-election as, as a councilman in town. So I was getting constant press coverage. So everybody knew me. Like, it was a great time. I was 30 I left in May of 1978, and I got reelected that year by a huge margin. So things were really, I was really riding a crest. So you mentioned that you wanted to go out on your own, but you were afraid. So how you had that bug, that entrepreneurial bug at well, some I point? Well, I tell you when the fear, I got over it. I got over the fear really quickly because my practice took off immediately. I mean, there was no downtime. I mean, from the moment I opened my own office, I brought some clients with me who wanted to stay with me, and things just took off immediately. So the fear, and not to talk money, but I did better financially. I, I was doing better financially as well. And yeah, I, I think most people say that. Yeah. What I hear. Just don't forget, working for the firm, I was getting a paycheck not paying any bills. I didn't pay rent or malpractice or phone. Now, before I would get a dime, I got to pay my secretary, the rent, because I was renting space, the malpractice, the phone, everything else, before I get anything. Well, my first year, even with all that, I did better. So, in retrospect... It was a blessing. It turned yeah. out to be a blessing. Yeah, it turned yeah. out to be great. I think that happens to a lot of people. I, I've known people that got fired and were scrambling because they needed yeah. money and just you know we're in a profession where you can just hang a shingle not yeah. every profession you yeah. can do that but you can just hang a shingle and you just make it work yeah. when well, you I, have like to like i said i wasn't asked to leave but it was clearly mm -hmm. a yeah. situation where i couldn't work there any longer you still felt like you had to leave absolutely well, can you talk about what it was or would you rather keep that private well 
I'd rather keep it private for one reason, because the person I had the riff with is deceased. If I talk about it, I'd end up being critical about him. Uh, and I don't think that would be fair to be critical of someone, especially who can't answer. Okay, that's fair. Let's just say I thought I was right. I'm convinced I was. Do you still think you're right today? <laughs> yes, and I'll tell you why. The less senior partner, before I left, saw me confidentially. He goes, I understand exactly why you, you feel you have to leave. So he couldn't say it yeah. to the senior partner. But one of the partners, he knew that I was justified. He just he just didn't want to get into a, a fight with his partner, but he knew I was justified. Yeah, yeah I, I understand. Thank you. So you got involved in politics, too. What inspired you to do that? There was a judge in South Carolina named Judge Theodore Appleby, who was a family friend, and uh, he inspired me. So in 1975, I ran for the South River Borough Council, and I won. Uh, and then I, re around, I ran again in 78, the year I opened my own office and won again. So it was really him. His name was, you know, said Appleby. Great guy. He's since passed away. In fact, you've been in my chambers. He was the person who left me his gavel collection. Oh, okay. You know, I've got over 50 gavels, different size and oh, shape. Oh, I like that, yeah. And he and his deceased and his widowed wife left me his collection, about 37, 38 of them. Then I've gotten some over the years as gifts. That's nice. Mm. That's nice. Um, so how long were you, would you say you were involved in politics? Well, as an elected official, six years. But I was involved in other ways. For example, uh, I was the township attorney for Old Bridge for a while. I was a local prosecutor in a few towns. I worked on Governor Kane's. Uh, when he ran for election, I was on lawyers for Kane. When Jim Corder ran for governor against Florio in 89, I did some work for Jim Corder. So as elected official, six years, but indirectly working, helping people from prob for probably until I became a judge. So was it your goal to be a judge, or was it just an opportunity that presented itself? I didn't start thinking about it. I, I was admitted in 72. I didn't start thinking about it until the early 80s. So it wasn't a goal of mine coming out of law school, no. But as my career was moving on, then I started thinking about it. So you didn't want to be governor or be president, president of the United States. <laughs> Did you ever have those aspirations like, you know, I'm going to follow the path? No, no. Okay. First of all, I'm not qualified to be president. I'm not qualified to be governor. Uh, <laughs> I will not say anything. Well, I'm not <laughs> about that. There, there are plenty of people not qualified. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> but I we mean, won't go there. Let's put it this way: I know my limitations. <laughs> Governor's not in my strike zone. You know where? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I've I've always thought that politics is. Um, I don't know. I'll just be blunt. It's kind of dirty. <laughs> no, I'm not well, the only one. And you have to play a certain game. And I just can't deal with that. I would have no desire well, to be a part of well that. Well, on the local level, I enjoyed it. Again, being a councilman in my own hometown where I grew up and knew everybody, that was enjoyable. Uh, so you, did you feel like you had to play that game? Or is that maybe when you get higher up? I mean, no, I mean I, do you I, have I, any opinion about that? No, I didn't think it was a game. You know, I just thought I was giving back. Uh, South Denver was good to me. You know, I enjoyed the schools. 
is a great sports town. Like I said, I played in uh, four different sports leagues. I, I went from Shorty League three years to Minor League one year to Little League one year to Babe Ruth League three years. And Souther was a, was a good town to grow up in, very safe town. And I thought running for the council was a way of giving back. And I thought also it helped me in my career. Okay. So you were in private practice 17 years, right? Yes. And how much of that time did you have your firm? The whole time. Oh, okay. So I, I opened my office in May of 78, and then I closed it when I became a judge in February of 89. Do you feel like the legal profession was, do you think that lawyers were perceived differently then than they are now? Yes, much differently. But, how so? And it's unfortunate. It was much more collegial back in the 70s and early 80s. You know, there was no faxes. There was no cell phones. There was no email. Uh, lawyers knew everybody. I remember I could go to a Middlesex County bar meeting. I knew everybody in the room. And I was the kid. Because I was probably the youngest. And I probably looked even younger. And people talked to each other. And it was a lot less contentious. Uh, so it was a lot more... The practice was much more enjoyable than than it's become over the years, unfortunately. Yeah, I wish I could have experienced it back then. Yeah, um, yeah. Even I've been practicing law 16 years, and even in that time, I can I see changes over the years. Well, it, like I said, the biggest, the two big downfalls, which I think were unfortunate, a lot less collegial. That's number one. And in some respects, I hate to say this. It doesn't seem as professional as it used to be. It seems more of a business than it used to be. Yeah, you and I have talked about that because you were on Divorce mm -hmm. Happy Hour. Mm -hmm. We talked about that a little bit. And I tend to agree with that. I don't think it's the lawyers necessarily doing that. I think it's just our society that has changed that. And I think a lot of it's the Internet. The answer is you're totally right. It's not the lawyers themselves. It is society. For example, I, I've been in restaurants where you'll see four people at a table. They're all texting. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, here, here's a perfect example in my practice. I'm not sure about yours. I, I practice law now, like you do, in a different way, because I do, you know, ultimate dispute resolution. I doubt I, if I get phone five phone calls a week. I'll doubt if I get five pieces of hard mail a week, snail mail. But I'll get 50 emails a day. Compared to, for example, I remember when I was on vacation in private practice once, I came back, I remember, to 60 phone messages. If I go on vacation now, I'll be lucky to come back to five. Yeah, and I think there's this expectation that you're always available. For sure, because people know they could reach you. I get emails from people all hours of the day and night, weekends, and probably because people know I return them. Yeah, you set the tone. Well, I probably do because, uh, as I jokingly say, I have no, no life. But I, I, that's a joke, of course. But I believe if people email me, it's because there's an issue they need to confront. So I like to be responsive. Well, I'm sure that your clients appreciate that. So 17 years go by. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? Well, I became a judge in 1989 in February. February 10th to be exact, and then it's a different way of life. What was the learning curve like for that? You know, I don't, I don't want to sound 
arrogant or presumptuous, but I don't think it was that great because the presiding judge said to me once as a nice compliment, he goes, I never saw anyone who could pick it up so quickly. Uh, I was doing the same work, just from a different side of the bench, a different side of the uh, table. So I don't think the learning curve was that great. Hopefully I, hopefully I didn't make any mistakes. But so, because again, as someone once said to me, judges are lawyers just doing a different job. Well, I clerked for Judge Daly, and he always said, if I make a mistake, the appellate division will tell me. Well, the answer is that's true, but the thing you have to fear about is something beyond that. Yes. you got to fear about yeah. making a mistake where someone can't, cannot afford to appeal you. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. That's uh, probably more typical. I was always afraid of making a mistake, and I'll tell you why. Someone said to me who vetted me for the bench, if you make a mistake, someone gets hurt. So I've always, I've never forgotten that. I've always remembered that as a judge, you, you can't have a bad day. You know, a baseball player gets hit 30% of the time, he's in the Hall of Fame. But as a judge, y you got to get it right all the time. And you also have a different responsibility because I tell my clients the courthouse is treated like a business. You know, the judges have to mm -hmm. make decisions, mm -hmm. but they also have to move things along. Mm -hmm. um, did you feel that pressure to move things along? Somewhat, but I have some things, I have some assets, I have some liabilities. I've always been very organized. Did I feel pressure to move things along? At times, sure. Because you can't control the amount of work you get. You can't control how many people file cases. Uh, so the answer is yes. But I always, I always said this. If you want, if, to be a judge, you have to realize you have a lot of cases. But you've got to treat every person as if they're a case the only one you have. Because no, one, no litigant cares about any case but his or hers. So, for example, when, right. I was, when I was in, in what's called special civil part, where you might get dozens and dozens of, say, small claims court in a day, you have a lot of numbers to deal with, but you've got to treat everyone not as a number. That's the, that's the hard part. Yeah, because I've always said multitasking doesn't work. Actually, it doesn't. In fact, uh, someone said to me once, multitasking is nothing, is, is a breeding ground for mistakes. Now, I have to admit, I multitask a lot, probably too much. But the answer is when you multitask, you, you take a risk. Yeah, um, I'm a fan of Deepak Chopra. I don't know if I told you this before, and he always says if you're doing two or three things at once, you're not doing anything. I never heard it put that way, that unless you told me that. But the bottom line is that I'm sure I multitask more than I should. So you weren't a judge continuously. You had a break. Yes. And you were appointed the prosecutor of Middlesex County. Yes. So how did that come about? Why did you leave the bench to do that? What happened was it was January 1998. Uh, Christy Whitman had gotten reelected. I had been on the bench for nine years, not quite, maybe a month shy. I get a phone call one night from her uh, chief of staff who asked me if I would consider taking the job. And uh, Was that unusual? Would that be unusual to ask a sitting judge to do that or no? Well, it's happened before. In the early 80s, Alan Rockoff, Judge Rockoff, uh, took the job. And in Camden County, they've got a retired judge. In Ocean County, they had a retired judge. 
which I retired, me retired from the bench. It wasn't common, but it wasn't the first time it ever happened. So you took on that role? Yes. Were you, did, I don't know, why did you take that? What Were you happy as a judge? Did you just see this as a great opportunity to do something different? Because it does have a lot of responsibility, right? I wasn't looking for the job. But as someone said to me once, another judge said to me once, if you go into public service and a governor asks you for something, you can't say no. Uh, so I was, re I was actually gave up tenure to take the job. But it was Judge Bachman who since passed away. And when he told me about it, when he spoke to me about it, he said, Glenn, if the governor asked you to take a job, you can't say no to it. Oh, I could have literally if I wanted to, but... Uh, it would be remembered. Probably. <laughs> it wouldn't, it's not like you declined a dinner invitation. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it would probably have not been received well. They could, they, there would have been no recriminations, but, but like I said, if you make a commitment to public service, you make a commitment. So how long were you prosecutor? From uh, April of 1998 to July of 2002. So when you're the prosecutor, I mean, you're not really the guy that's going to court all the time. Maybe if something really big comes along, you would do that? I, that job, you, it is what you want it to be. Some people take that job and never go to court. I tried four cases in my tenure there. One was a capital murder case. I did it for a couple of reasons. One, to set an example for the other prosecutors, and B, because I wanted to. I didn't want to sit and just deal with administrative problems and budgets and personnel matters and disciplinary hearings and contracts. I wanted to, I was a lawyer. I am a lawyer. So I wanted to go to court. So being a prosecutor is similar to being a judge in that you're, you're kind of running a business too. There's that aspect. Well, it, you're running a big business. When I was county prosecutor, we had over 200 employees at a budget over $10 million. So you're, you, you are running an organization. And how did you find that responsibility? Did you, did you love it? Was it stimulating? I can't say I loved it. It was stimulating in this respect. Well, one thing I learned early on is I read some business books. There's a term called span of control, which means a CEO of any organization cannot effectively oversee, I think, more than seven people. I think I've heard that. So I designed, so I knew who my seven people were that I had to oversee, for example, the chief of detectives, the office manager, my secretary, who of course, privately, report to me. Then I had a first assistant, the deputy first assistant. I think that's five. A head of special investigation, a head of homicide. So I defined clearly very early on, that's probably a military background. In, having been in the Army, you'll learn about chain of command. I devised what I called, the, the, what I defined early on what the span would be of who I, would, who I would directly oversee, who would directly report to me. Because you can't oversee 200 people. It's impossible. Nobody yeah, that is impossible. Yeah, nobody I can. only have eight here, and I find that yeah. difficult. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, if you have an organization of 2,000 people or 200, you can't oversee them all. It's impossible. You have to define who it's going to be. And uh, anybody who watches Law & Order knows that the prosecutor also has a special uh, role or obligation to sort of manage public relations? Yes, that's true. 
did you, what did you think of that? How would you describe that? I mean, is it normally business as usual? Well, it's totally the reverse from being a judge. Because a judge, you, you have no contact with the press, zero. If they want to hear what you say, they're in court listening to it. As a prosecutor, you're constantly dealing with the press. So it, it, it's a total role reversal, complete role, role reversal. So do you have to be mindful all the time that you want to portray to the public that, I don't know, I mean, I guess it changes over time, but that, that you're either hard on crime, that you're not soft on crime, that whoever is being held accountable. I mean, what what are you really doing from a public relations standpoint when you're the prosecutor? Well, when you talk about hard on crime, soft on crime, I always had a view. I felt much more, I felt much more strictly about crime that threatens a person than crime that doesn't. For example, I'll give you an example. Uh, Obviously, you can't justify any criminal activity. But I would feel a lot differently about someone who, say, smokes marijuana or welfare fraud than someone who commits an armed robbery. Because if you put someone's life or health in danger, that, to me, uh, was a different level. Let me give you a better example. If you break into someone's house, that's a third-degree burglary. If you break into someone's car, it's a third-degree burglary. But I treated them much differently. I felt if you broke into someone's house, you're invading their privacy, you're traumatizing them, you may be, sometimes you're harming people, you're breaking into someone's car, obviously they're not there. So my standard was if you break into someone's house, you're going to jail. If you're breaking into someone's car, I could live with probation. So even though they're the exactly the same category of offense, I would feel much differently about it. So you have to define what you feel is should be dealt with harshly and where you feel you could deal more compassionately. So there is a little bit of discretion there. And there's, I, there's, know, a, there's a lot. Prosecutors, different prosecutors or assistant prosecutors, they get a reputation for, you know, this one loves to send everyone to jail. This one doesn't. Everybody gets, mm. you know, probation if they mm. can with this one. Does... You know, it seems like in those cases, those people have some discretion. But as the prosecutor, I guess you can only talk mm -hmm. from your own uh, experience. Does that sort of trickle down from you? Like, how do you influence them in terms of, you know, this one would be soft and this one's not? How do you influence that? Okay, there's a couple of ways. But the answer is you're right. You have, you, have a, you have a ton of what's called unreviewable discretion. In fact, when I became prosecutor, I got a beautiful letter from Justice Pollack who was a retired Supreme Court justice, a fa fabulous man in every respect, who sent me a beautiful letter saying, when he was chief counsel to Governor Byrne, there were more s circumspect on prosecutorial appointments than judges because prosecutors had more unreviewable discretion. I had a first assistant and I had a deputy first assistant who oversee the teams, the team of trial lawyers. It filtered down through them. And we had to be consistent. They knew, they knew what my expectations were. I don't think anyone ever pigeonholed me as being too hard or too soft. Uh, if they did, I didn't hear about it. I obviously thought I was fair, but that depends who's ox you're goring. If someone thinks if someone goes to jail, they'll think I'm too hard. If someone doesn't, they'll think they'll think the reverse. So the legal system has changed 
you know, and as everything mm-hmm. does, it evolves. Do you think that our legal system is broken in any way, or do you feel like justice happens most of the time? I don't, th- I don't think the system is broken at all. And in fact, I think in New Jersey we have a very good system. Uh, can judges make mistakes? Sure. I mean, I know, look, I'm sure in 19 years on the bench, I'm sure I made mistakes. And this, like everyone else, my hindsight's perfect. My joke about myself is any mistake I made was very well thought out. Yes, I've heard you say <laughs> that. Well, and that's comforting. <laughs> well, because <laughs> at least to me, anyway. Well, because I, I never shot from the hip. If I had a problem, it was maybe as a friend of mine said, I would overthink things. Thing, I would overthink things. So, do, do I think this system's broken? Not in the slightest. No, not at all. Okay, but certainly the from in the family court, there's a lot more cases than there used to be, aren't there? Yes. When I was practi- when I first was admitted, there was one judge in the family part, actually maybe two. One did divorce cases, one did juvenile cases. Now I think there's 10 or 11. So at some point, you weren't the prosecutor anymore, and you went back to being a judge? Yes. How did that all come about? Well, that was actually an easy transition. What happened was uh, Jim McGreevy from Woodbridge, who I know him, he knows me, got elected in 2001. Most governors like to appoint the county prosecutors. Uh, I was still in a five-year term, but uh, I never envisioned myself as a career prosecutor. I didn't envision myself as a career judge. I made it known, or he made it known. It was mutual. I mean, he wanted to fill the position with someone from his party. I was interested in going back, so it was a very it was a mutual, it was mutually agreed upon. It was no problem. And then when you b- went back to being a judge, you were presiding judge at that point of the not, family? Not immediately. I went back in July of 2002. Uh, I became a presiding judge of the family part January 1st of 2003. Let me ask you this. At, when you were at the prosecutor's office, it wasn't really that long ago, would, would you say that there was a huge drug problem the way we have it today? I mean, the opioid epidemic hadn't really... No, I don't recall the opioid epidemic being a huge problem. If if you're asking, do we have a lot of drug cases? The answer is yes. Did you think of those differently? I mean, do you feel like if someone has... Because now we have drug court. I don't know when that started, if that was around when you were... It was. Here's where I felt differently. And I gave you a distinction between breaking into a house and breaking into a car. I felt differently about users than sellers. If someone had a use problem, a possession problem, I, I felt treatment is the best option. If someone was a, was a distributor, I felt differently and more harshly. Yeah, so, so you answered my question. I was going to ask you if you feel like we should invest in trying to rehabilitate them. I think you kind of answered my question. The, the answer is sure, and I'll give you look. It, it makes sense financially. It costs more. I used to joke about this. It's not a joke, though. It costs more money to keep someone in jail than to keep them at the Hyatt New Brunswick. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not sure which one's nicer. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard the food is pretty good mm-hmm. in jail. Um, okay. Do you think marijuana should be legalized? I have reservations about that. And I'll tell you why. Uh, 
a retired state police superintendent wrote a really good op-ed piece a while ago. And I have reservations. I, I've never made up my mind about that because according to the state police superintendent, he believed there's a direct tie-in between that and automobile fatalities, people driving under the influence. So uh, I understand why you don't want to put people in jail for it. That I understand. But you have other issues to, to think about. So, Well, that's the same of alcohol, though, right? I mean, we have DWI laws. Yes, that's true. Uh, I get it. Uh, but that doesn't mean you want to legalize marijuana. Like I said, I've always been, I've always, as I say, the jury's out on that one with me. I understand why people want to legalize it. I understand the issues that could flow from it. I'm you know, undecided myself. You so. know, the problem is, I've thought about this, which is sort of cynical. With every great invention comes consequences. Yeah, it's true. You invent a gun, you invent rather a car, and you have car accidents. I'm not saying you don't get rid of I'm not saying get, get rid of cars. Of course, we need them. Uh, people are entitled to drink. I get it. And you have DWI. Uh, you invent a gun for, for use in the military, and people use them for other reasons. Uh, I mean, the, it's funny. You know, for example, the Nobel Peace Prize. You know what Nobel was famous for inventing? No. Dynamite. Interesting. Now, dynamite's was also used for engineering work, like road building. So its its initial design was not for war. It was for peaceful purposes. Yes. There there are plenty of things that have some a positive impact and when yeah. used incorrectly can have a negative yeah. impact. Well, yeah. For example, if you ever drive through western Pennsylvania, you go through those tunnels that go through the mountains, I got to believe they were opened up using dynamite. I, yeah. would, I would think. Yeah. Well... You know, school shootings and just in general public shootings, it's become sadly sort of normal now in our society. I don't want to say normal, but typical. That's we're not shocked anymore. That's the sad part. Yeah. The sad part is when it's, not sh when it's no longer shocking. And what's sad about it is, and I've said this, the United States mo mo is considered the most civilized country in the world. A lot of people say that. It's also one of the most violent. Our murder rates are a lot higher than, uh, say, the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. And here's something that people forget about. The murder rate in Israel is almost non-existent. The murder rate uh, among Israelis is non-existent. The murder rate I, I read about among Palestinians is probably non-existent. Where the existence is, is between the two, Palestinian versus Israeli, which I don't want to get into because we don't have the time and... That would be another show. That would be another show. But the bottom line is, is that you look at the murder rates in America, and they're, dr and they're exponentially greater than almost every civilized country in the world. Why do you think, though, that it's so common now to hear about somebody who's done a public shooting? I don't remember when I was a kid that that was even a thing. It, it must have happened, not the way that it does now. I never heard about it growing up. I didn't hear about it. And I think... I think it's two reasons. Although I'm not a sociologist or criminologist, I think it's it's two reasons. It's uh, what's the correct word? Mental issues, 
And as Bill Clinton once said, in this country, he said once, it's easier to get a gun than it is to vote. Think about that. It's a sad commentary. Depends what state you're in. <laughs> well, with registration and voter yeah. ID. But he said, you know, that's, I never thought of it that way. But the answer is yes. When I was growing up, you never heard of a school shooting. There's, there's no such thing. Yeah, I don't. I didn't hear. I don't. E I don't remember what was the first one. When what year that was? But the first one I remember was Columbine. Yes, I think that was the first what, one. About 1998 or 99. Yeah. Well, I don't want this to turn into mm. a conversation about gun control. That's fine. Pe people feel very strongly about that. Um. I don't think we can talk about your career without talking about the Darun Ravi case. Okay. <laughs> um, would you say that that was the most notorious case of your career? Well, the most. Or am I forgetting something? Well, it was the most. It was more recent. It was the most publicly viewed, for sure. It was in the press every day. The trial was a month, so notorious, I don't know. But clearly, no matter what I do the rest of my life, if people think about me as a judge, that's all that will come up. You think so? Sure. I mean, because... Well, you retired shortly after that. Yeah. I re uh, the case, I sentenced them on May 21st, uh, 2002. I retired at the end of the year. So I can't imagine there's anybody who doesn't know what that case is, but just in case... Um, so Tyler Clementi and Darun Ravi were college roommates. Mm -hmm. They were freshmen at Rutgers. Mm -hmm. And da and you tell me where I get anything wrong. Darun uh, set up a webcam mm -hmm. surreptitiously and recorded or um, live streamed mm -hmm. Tyler having an intimate experience with another man. And subsequently, Tyler committed suicide. That's... So it capsulizes it pretty well. And, um, you know, this came up in a time in our culture where we're much more attuned to things like cyberbullying. Mm. Well, beca obviously because of the Internet, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I think also LGBT rights. Yes. And it was a confluence of all of that. Yes. So when, that, when you inherited that case, when, when mm. you got that case... It was already all over the news, right? I mean, immediately. It was all over the news, but unbeknownst to me, because uh, I, I don't read the newspapers sections that deal with homicide or murder. I just, for a lot of reasons. One is depressing. Yeah. So the answer is, when that case landed on my lap, I never even knew about it. I knew about it quickly thereafter. So did you even realize how big this case really was? No. When you started working on it? No. What happened was the division manager brought the file to me because I was acting presiding judge of the criminal part, and she goes, I think you better handle this. I think this is going to be uh, I think I forget the word she used, but she, I know she said, I think you better handle this yourself and not delegate it out. And I did. So did you realize the cultural significance at the time? As it was happening, or did that become more apparent later? You know, I didn't really focus or devote a lot of thought to the cultural significance. I was really more concentrated on making sure that the case was not infected by the publicity, by making sure there was a fair trial, 
by making sure that I got it right on the evidence issues. So I really never gave a ton of thought to what you call the cultural significance. I mean, if you if you just Google it, it's credited with really starting a national conversation about cyberbullying. I know that. I know you're right when you say that. But that was not my focus. And it's used as somewhat of an example now, sort of a springboard for, you know, how we should be moving forward as a society. Well, like I said, it was one of the reasons it got so much coverage. I have a cousin who was following in California, and he said to me one day, he goes, the reason it's getting so much coverage is it feels like our, our way of life is on trial with the Internet and things going viral and, uh, and, and, and political correctness. That's what he said to me. But like I said, my focus was, was on the trial itself. So there came a time when you sentenced him. Yes. And you were quoted as saying, and I actually should back up a little bit because one of the um, charges he had was a bias intimidation yes. charge, which has been changed. It's been... Partially. Okay. So, but at the time that was the law and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the consideration had to be whether the victim believed that the perpetrator... Um, was committing the act as some sort of hate crime, you know, because of their sexual orientation mm. or, or race mm. or something like that. Did I get that right? Well, there were basically three parts to the statute of the bias. Uh, two f focus on the, the defendant, Robbie, and one focus on the perception of the victim. The last section was invalidated by the court after my trial. Okay, yes. So at the time that you sentenced him, this mm -hmm. was the law. And you said, I do not believe he hated Tyler Clementi. He had no reason to, but I do believe he acted out of colossal insensitivity. Do you remember saying that? Yes. And then you also said, I heard this jury say guilty 288 times, 24 questions, 12 jurors. That's the multiplication. I haven't heard you apologize once. Do you remember saying that? Yes. So can you talk about what your what was your perception of, I guess, Darun Ravi at the time and your consideration of your sentence? Because you did get some criticism for the sentence. I got two baskets of mail. One Only two? Well, maybe more. How big were the baskets? They were pretty big. Bankers boxes. And and I should say for people who don't know, you sentenced him to was it thirty one days in jail? Thirty days in jail, three years probation, three hundred hours community service, and a ten thousand dollar assessment for a fund for victims of bias crimes. One basket of mail was I wasn't fit to be a judge, basically. That's a nice way of putting it. And one basket was I was brilliant and fair. So pick your poison. You don't seem like the kind of person who cares about about that, about what other people well, are going to think. No, I, well, I do care about what some people think. depends who it is. Uh, do I like getting nasty mail? Of course not. No. But you also have to consider, I was there for 30 days in court. Other than the lawyers and the, the principals, not, and the, some of the media, not everyone else was. Uh, I remember that day after sentence, the person whose feelings I cared about the most were my daughters. 
because, you know, I always want to look good in the eyes of my kids. I, I have a son also, but my son didn't follow as closely, I don't think. Uh, so do I care what people think about me? Sure, but I also knew, I also knew no matter what I did, I was going to get criticized, either being too harsh or being too lenient. So I care what people think and pe people say, but I didn't give it a lot of thought because I knew no matter what I did, I was going to get criticized. I was sure of it. Well, what was the maximum sentence that he could have received? Well, maximum, as I recall it, the bias intimidation, one count alone was five to ten years in prison. He was convicted of four. So theoretically, he had gone to prison for well north of five years. In fact, the prosecutors were asking for a prison term of at least five years. So why did you think 30 days was appropriate? Well, let me answer it this way. I can't say 45 days would be more appropriate or 15 days or 90 days or 60 days or 10 days. I thought that I had to fashion sentence, according to the code, that would deter him. One of the sentencing factors is deterrence to the defendant and others. I thought some jail time was appropriate. I didn't think, I didn't think an enormous amount was appropriate. Uh, and, it's, and the fact is, as I said this at the time, it's a balancing test. I, I, I said at the time, which dates me, I said, you don't do this with a slide rule. Not knowing at the time, no one knows what a slide rule is anymore. I don't know what a slide rule, I've heard of a slide rule, <laughs> Judge Berman. <laughs> well, when I was Don't in, exactly know how it works. Yeah, well, when I was in high school, we had slide rules. But my point is, you don't do this mathematically. It's a balancing test. And that's the way I came out. You could ask 10 other people, you could get 10 other answers, and maybe none of them would be wrong. So it sounds like you considered what third, what impact 30 days would have on him. Yeah, yes. But what about, did, did you think about any message that it was sending to everyone else? Yes, I thought about both. Uh, that's why I said one of the sentencing factors is the sentence has to act as a deterrent to the defendant and others. In this case, that was clearly appropriate because you know it was being watched. It was on TV. It was, yeah. it was, the press was enormous. So I knew it was being followed. Yeah. You know, he was very young. They both were incredibly young. Yeah. And we've all done stupid things when we're 20. I, I mean, I did. I don't know <laughs> if you did, Judge Berman. Well, I'm sure I've done some things that I wouldn't do again. Yes. And, you know, you, you, there's a different level of maturity. Sure. I think it's fair to say he's immature, he was immature. I read a, an op-ed piece by a, a law professor and a former attorney general that came in afterwards that said something that I never thought about, that they said, at least for boys, that young boys, young men's brains or whatever aren't fully developed until like age 25. I never I've read that too. I never, I never read that, never heard that till then. Of course, there were, look, there were two young boys in her third week of college. I think it was like September 20th when this happened. Probably neither was ever away from home except during college. That's why I said, do I think Darun Ravi was a, a criminal? No, I don't. He was not. A, he did something that broke the law. But in my view, sending him to prison would have served no, no, no legitimate purpose. Do you need to get that? Well, they hung up. Well, I think I probably only have a few more questions. Okay. 
So how did you feel when the conviction was overturned? Did you think that that was the right result? Uh, I semi-expected at least a partial reversal because, because the statute was, part of the statute was declared invalid after the trial. So I wasn't surprised by it at all. I thought they may have uphold some of the parts unrelated to it, but the bottom line, the appellate division, I, it was impossible to separate it out. I remember the decision from them was like 60-some pages. Uh, I, I do remember one quote well. They said, the jury was guided by then-appropriate instructions. So I got it right with the law that would existed. So I was glad about that. So, in fact, I basically predicted to the assignment judge, I said, you know, this case is not going to stand up on appeal totally because part of the statute he was convicted of it was invalidated. Well, I read an article somewhere that you had made some comments that the statute was not so easy to interpret. I said it was it. muddled, and it yes. is. And, in fact, after that case, after I got off the bench, a number of legislators who will go nameless asked me how to fix it. And I said it was an easy fix. Uh, so I said, I said at the time on the record I had problems with the statute. Because the statute focused, you know from criminal law yourself, that to a crime, a crime constitutes two ingredients, an act and an intent. The part of this statute focused not on the intent of the actor, but the perception of the victim. So that's why I knew the statute had problems. Have you read the new statute? Or was only one part that was struck? Only one part was struck. So what do you think of the way the statute is now? Why? It doesn't. Look, the legislature didn't have a choice. They got to, they, whether they fix it or not, you can't prosecute under that, under that invalidated section, period. So when you look back on your career, that stands out as, would you say, a highlight? Not may, maybe in the most positive sense, but certainly shaped your career in some way. Well, let me put it this way. Do I think I did it? Do I think I handled it well? in the glare of a lot of publicity? Yes, I do. Uh, but I worked very hard on it. I mean, I worked very hard on it. Uh, I think I like, I, I like to think I worked hard on every case, but this case was being watched. So was I sensitive to it? Well, this, let's say this. I knew I was being watched, literally. Do you think about that case often now? No. It's... My, let's see, so we're almost eight years out. So the answer is, do I think about it? I've got a lot of other things on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look back over your career, though, are there some other things that stand out to you, you know, as being a more significant event than that? And, and what? What is it? Well, I handled two. I was a judge on a capital murder case. I was a prosecutor on a capital murder case in terms of, in terms of consequence. Did you win? The, uh, well on, the, on the one case, th this goes back to the 90s, uh, the, the guy was convicted, but we have no death penalty anymore. He's now in jail. And uh, the case I prosecuted, capital murder, it was affirmed in the appellate division. Supreme Court remanded it for a new trial. He was convicted again. So he's still in jail. Okay. So in terms of, uh, in terms of 
extent of criminality, there were a lot, I mean, there were murder. So obviously a lot more heinous. Yeah. So, but no one, but those weren't followed in the media. So no one knows about it except That's the people involved. Except the direct people involved. Well, it seems like everything's in the media now. It's hard to, it's hard to go under the radar now with the internet and social media. It's almost impossible to go under the internet. Although, you know what? Since everything is out there, I think in some way it's just all muddled because everything gets attention. What 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 do you decide now gets the most attention? I don't know. It I'm seems not, like the Kardashians. I'm not on, I'm <laughs> or not makeup on, or I'm something not on like Facebook. that. Facebook. I don't do Twitter. I'm not LinkedIn. So, uh, so I'm uh, I'm not part of that culture. So you you should start an Instagram page, Judge Berman. Yeah, haven't you done should. that. Haven't done that either. I'll, we, we can talk after the show. I'll manage it for you. So you've worked in the legal system for 48 years? Did I do my math right? Well, yeah, I graduated law school in 72. That's a long time to be in the system to see mm -hmm. how things have evolved. Mm -hmm. If you had to make any assessment about how we've evolved our legal system or us as mm -hmm. a society, what are there any thoughts that emerge and I know I'm just uh, springing this on you now. I'd have to think about that. Like I said, the I think the I think the judiciary in New Jersey is excellent. Uh, I think there are a lot of great lawyers out there. Unfortunately, there are some that uh, just disappoint you from time to time. But that's always going to be the case. There's just a lot more lawyers out there today than there were when I was admitted. When I was admitted, I think there were ten thousand lawyers in New Jersey. Now it's got to be multiples of that i mean maybe that partly explains as you said earlier why we treat it like a business perhaps it is yeah it is right it, yeah but when i was admitted it was it was like i said it was much more collegial it was a business then but it was much more collegial yeah i can agree with that even in the time i've been practicing much less mm -hmm. than you uh much shorter time than you but i think i see that too yeah in, uh, over the course of my 15, 16 years. What would you like your legacy to be? I don't think I'm, I don't think I merit one. Why? Well. Doesn't everyone? Well, I mean, when you say a legacy, it sounds like something attached to a president, a U.S. senator, a governor. Uh, Here's what I think. I've heard this said. I'm only as, you can only be as happy as your unhappiest kid. I got two mm. kids, two grandkids. If they're happy, I'm fine. Are they happy? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. They're, they're great kids. Good. So I think, I think that's it. I mean, I could sit here all day mm -hmm. and ask you questions, but I, I, have you heard of a Proust questionnaire? A who? A Proust questionnaire. No. Well, I will admit I stole this from Vanity Fair magazine. If you open up a Vanity Fair magazine, they have it in the back cover of mm -hmm. every issue. And it's just a series of questions, very short questions. And you give, you know, a one word or okay. very oh. short one sentence response. And it's supposed to reveal something about your character. Actually, on center stage, they call that hit and run. <laughs> I've, heard it, I've heard it that way. Well, maybe I'll make up a different name for it. So I have six. Just say whatever comes to mind. What's your idea of perfect happiness? 
I can't answer that. Okay. In, in my world, in my world, it's my kids being happy, healthy, successful with, with, with themselves and their family. That's in my world. Okay. That's a good answer. I mean, I, I will say that, yeah, that's in my world, that would be the answer. What's your idea of misery? The reverse of what I just said. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> what trait do you most value in others? Loyalty. That's an easy one. Yeah. What trait do you most deplore in others? Dishonesty or disloyalty. I knew you were going to say that too. What is your greatest strength? I think I'm loyal to my friends and I think I'm dedicated to my kids. And what is your greatest weakness? Uh, I could probably be impatient at time. I probably, as my friend once, my best friend once said to me, you have all your dad's good qualities, but you got some of his bad ones. I think if someone steps on my toes, I don't tend to be as forgiving as other people. So that's probably not a good thing. I, I'm, I don't harbor on it, but I think that's the reverse of being loyal. I'm very loyal to my friends. But again, if someone is dishonest with me, if someone treats me poorly, I'll probably remember it much longer than other people. Yeah, I think I'm like that too. I'm not sure how I feel about it. And I'm too old to change. <laughs> well, you could have worse characteristics. Thank so you. I think you passed the Proust questionnaire very well. Thank you so much for your time and sharing with me. It's been a pleasure. Um, I feel like there's so many other things that I could ask yeah. you, but you've given me 90 minutes. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.